0: Well, let me uh, ask you a question. What is your greatest fear? Now, for some people, it's bridges, it's spiders, heights, public speaking. For me, my greatest fear is snakes. I'm telling you, like, if, if there is any animal. My wife said, it's not an animal, it's a reptile. Well, I don't care. That thing should be dead. That's all I know. There's a reason Satan decided to use a snake, okay? They're horrible creatures. Well, last year, we had a timber rattler come into our backyard. One of the most most dangerous snakes in Alabama. I didn't know it, but my dog, Sophie, saw it and approached it and stood over top of this timber rattler barking like you have never heard barking before. So I am going outside like what is happening and what is she barking at? And I see the snake and I thought, it's time to face my fear. So I went and got a wooden handled garden hoe and I chopped up that snake like it was sushi. Sushi. I thought this thing is going to die. You see, this animal had potential to kill. And yet my dog stepped in and let me know of the plot and stopped the whole thing. That's a picture of what we see happening with Mordecai in Esther chapter two. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Esther chapter two we in the middle of a sermon series as a faith family called Unseen Sovereign, in which we are going through the, the book of Esther together as a faith family. And as we're studying this, we're seeing that God is at work even when we do not see him. The book begins with God's people who are living in Persia, and they're living under the authority of King Ahasuerus. The king decides in chapter 1 to throw the party of all parties for his people. It is the party of the century. And in this party, there are gold goblets and gold couches, and the wine is flowing. There is one rule, and the one rule is drink as much as you want. Now, you can imagine the wise decisions that were not taking place when a rule like that is in place. Well, the king has too much to drink and he invites his wife, Queen Vashti, to come out and show off her beauty in front of all the people. But Vashti said, no, I am not coming out. So the king decided, what are we going to do? Let's get rid of Vashti. So he gets rid of Vashti and we get to chapter two and they begin to the search for a new queen. Well, hundreds of women from across Persia are brought to Susa, where the king is located, and they are brought there for the possibility, the chance of becoming queen. Now, though, through a series of providential circumstances, Esther becomes queen of Persia. The Jewess becomes the empress. And notice where the story picks up in verse 19. It says, when the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, why the virgins were gathered a second time, we don't know why. Perhaps the king was continuing his collection of women for his harem from across the kingdom. Or possibly, this is the after the final rose farewell party for those who lost to Esther. Now remember, Mordecai is Esther's cousin who adopted her as his own daughter after both of her parents had died. Well, Mordecai, he had an official position in Susa. He, he worked, verse 19, at the king's gate. Now sitting at the city gate was the ancient equivalent of our city hall. This is a place where community leaders would gather to confer. They would make decisions and they would perform business. We see Lot with a similar position in Genesis 19, sitting at the city gates. We see Boaz in Ruth chapter 4, where he goes to the city gate to buy land and to marry Ruth. Well, here we see Mordecai, verse 19, sitting at the city gate in Susa. What's interesting is that before the author moves the plot along to the murder conspiracy, he restates Esther's secret of her Jewish ethnicity. Look at verse 20. The text says, Esther had not revealed her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. Now, why is he sharing this again in verse 20? He's already told us this in verse 10. Well, it's because the author is giving us a very important clue on something that's about to happen later on in the drama. Now, a principle in Hebrew uh, language and storytelling is that repetition implies importance, okay? Repetition implies importance. In the Hebrew language, there are not exclamation marks, when they want to really uh, emphasize something, they will repeat it. Well, for the sake of the bigger story of Esther, it's important to note that no one knew that she was a Jew. She's queen over 127 provinces, and no one knew her ethnicity. See, being a wise, godly woman of character, Esther continues to submit here to the guidance of Mordecai. Now, remember this. Because verse 20 is actually setting up for the climax, as we're going to see in chapter 7. Then we see in the text, the assassination plot develop. I want you to see the plot to assassinate the king was, number one, consorted. It was consorted. Look at verse 21. During those days, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who had guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. That, that phrase, during those days, is a reference back to verse 19, when the virgins were gathered a second time. So whatever the purpose of these women being gathered in verse 19, I believe that the author is setting the time frame for when Mordecai would discover the secret coup. So these two men, Bigfin and Tarish, they conspire together. They consort together to assassinate the king. For whatever reason, these two men are full of anger and they want to plot to kill the king whether it was because of Mordecai's position or because of the process the king came up with to find a new queen or maybe it's because the king chose Esther or maybe it was something else we don't know but verse 21 they were furious And though the king had almost unlimited authority, unlimited wealth, unlimited pleasure, his safety was still not guaranteed. Here are the two men whose responsibility was to protect him, and they're planning to kill him. In fact, the history books tell us that King Ahasuerus would actually be assassinated 14 years later after this by the commander of his bodyguard but not this time. Why? Well, it's because number two, the plot was thwarted. It was thwarted. Look at verse 22. When Mordecai learned of the plot, now this is important. Verse 22 is a pivotal moment in the story. It's at this point that Mordecai, we see he was in the right place at the right time, and he discovers Big Thin and Terrish's evil plot to kill the king. You see, God is orchestrating all of these events in the background, and though he is not named in the entire book of Esther, he is at work. Now you can imagine the paranoia that a king has when he is the target of assassination attempts. This is one of the reasons why later on, Esther and Mordecai, they will gain the king's trust because they thwarted an assassination attempt on his life. Well, here we see Mordecai working for the good of the city. He thwarts the plot. Well, when he learned of the plot, it was number three, reported. It was reported, verse 22, he reported it to Queen Esther and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf, verse 23, when the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. Now Esther not only did right by her family, she not only did right by her people, the Jews, she also did right by her husband, the king. We see here as Mordecai, he reports the assassination plot to Esther, and then she goes and reports it to the king. The report is then confirmed through an investigation, and the two men are executed. Now, this execution, verse 23, is the author's way of telling the reader, you need to file this away for later on in the story. Remember this, because this is what happens to those who rise up against the king. And so it's actually setting the stage for another execution that we will see later in chapter seven. So Esther saves her husband, and next, sure, verse twenty-two, Mordecai gets the credits. So we see in the text that the plot to assassinate the king it was consorted. I'm easy, easy there. It was consorted, thwarted, reported, and fourthly, it was recorded. Verse twenty-three. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. So when Mordecai, he heard about the plot to kill the king, he told Esther. Esther told the king, and next year, verse 22, Mordecai gets the credit, which means his name goes on the official chronicle. This is a big deal. Mordecai saves the king's life. He shows himself trustworthy. He is for the king and for the kingdom. And unbeknownst to him, he's actually setting himself up to become prime minister, which we'll see later on in the text. You see, even before Haman's promotion, which we'll see next week, Lord willing, in chapter three, God is setting the stage for his people's protection and preservation. Okay, so you've got the feel of the text. This is what's happening here. What are the takeaways? Let me give you three takeaways from the text that I want you to see. And the first is this. Number one, trust God's perfect record keeping. Trust God's perfect record keeping. Now don't miss that detail there in verse 23. This event was recorded in the king's historical record. It may seem insignificant, but this is going to come into play later on in chapter 6. Because one night, the king is not going to be able to sleep. And what do you do when you can't sleep? You read history. So here we see the king, he sends his reader to go pick out a scroll. Well, out of the thousands of scrolls that his reader could have grabbed, he grabs this one, verse 23. And he reads the story. He goes right down, and he covers in his reading to the king while he can't sleep, verses 21 and verses 22. And he says, well, what do we do to honor Mordecai, to thank him for saving my life? And we'll find out later in the text. Where they say, well, you didn't do anything to honor him. Isn't it interesting that here we have the Lord, the unseen sovereign, who providentially rules over all things. He even ordains the reading material of the king, which leads the king's reader to the exact scroll that reminds the king that he forgot to honor Mordecai for saving his life. Let me ask you a question. If someone saved your life, would you say thank you? If someone pushed you out of an oncoming bus's path, would you stop and say thanks If someone tackled a shooter before they got a hold of you, do you think you'd write a thank you note? Well, here we see the king, he forgets. For whatever reason, he forgets about what Mordecai had done for him. You see, at the perfect time, God uses the journal entry, verse 23, to turn the tide against Haman and his evil schemes. Here's the good news. We can trust God's perfect record keeping. The Lord knows what you do for his people. You're going to be thinking, nobody appreciates me. Nobody notices all the good that I do. It's like I'm almost invisible. Does anybody know, does anybody care about the good things I do for other people? And the answer is yes. Your father in heaven is fully aware of all of the good that you do for his people. The Lord knows. The Lord sees The Lord is keeping track of every action, of every person, all over the world, all the time. Ecclesiastes 12 says, "...for God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil." You see, the one who neither sleeps nor slumbers, he is fully aware of all things at all times. You see, no one gets away with evil before the unseen sovereign who sees all things. The one who knows all things and the one who sees all things will one day reveal all things. You may be wondering, when is that person who hurt me going to get justice? That person who assaulted me, that person who conspired against me, that person who's worked against me, when are they going to get theirs? And the Lord says, do not worry I am fully aware, no one gets away with anything before the unseen sovereign. You see, you can trust his perfect record keeping. God keeps perfect records. Hebrews 4.13, nothing is hidden from God's sight. Indeed, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now hear me, you may not get the earthly credit for your good works. Oftentimes the good you do, it goes unnoticed by the vast majority of the world, but not by the unseen sovereign. He is watching and he cares and he loves your. Efforts, as meager as they are in comparison to his character, God sees. He knows. Hear me on this. The Lord always rewards the faithfulness of his people. The Lord always rewards the faithfulness of his people. And so keep encouraging, keep serving. Keep getting low and working for the good of others. Keep your good works up. Let your good works shine before men so that they might see your good works and give glory to your fathers, and continue to serve even though some may never see. They may never say thank you. May they may never stop and give you an award or a raise. Hear me on this from Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart. Not as for man, but as for the Lord who will one day reward you. For it is the Lord Christ whom you are serving, and God will reward your faithfulness. So, God's people, we trust God's perfect record keeping. Secondly, we're to trust God's perfect timing. We're to trust God's perfect timing. Mordecai, verse 21, was sitting at the king's gate, perfect place, when Bigthan and Teresh revealed their plan to assassinate the king. Perfect time. Perfect time, perfect place, taking place right here. It just so happens that Mordecai's daughter is the queen. Who is? Set it all up. I think there is a book that needs to be written by someone that says it's all rigged. The whole thing. All of life, it's rigged. God has this whole thing rigged. Because isn't it interesting? This, a plot to kill the king is revealed to the one who is the adopted father of the wife of the king. And here the author, it's like he's waving the flag of God's providence over verse 22. You see, there's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as happenstance. There's no such thing as a fluke. This is divine providence of God. Do you remember back in Ruth chapter two, verse three, where it says, Ruth just so happened To be in the field of Boaz. I love that. It's almost like, Lord, she just so happened to be in the exact place she needed to be. Do you remember in Genesis where Joseph, he was forgotten in prison for two years? For two years, the cupbearer completely forgot about him. And he was just there sitting in prison, possibly wondering, God, where are you? Why am I here? I did nothing wrong. My brothers sold me into slavery. I didn't do anything wrong. Here I am in a prison in Egypt. And yet at the perfect time, Pharaoh has a bad dream. The cupbearer remembers Joseph and the Lord promotes him and God uses him not only to save the nation of Egypt from famine, but to provide future salvation for God's people. You trust God's Timing. You may be wondering, why are things not going the way that I planned? My life is not going the way that I had hoped. Why are things going so slow? Hear me now. Trust God's perfect timing. Have you ever told God to hurry up? How'd that work out for you? You see, the Lord reminds us frequently through difficult circumstances his ways are not our ways. His timing is not our timing. And when we gripe, when we complain, when we try to rush God, we are in essence playing God. And the Lord says, I'm doing things that you don't even see and you don't even know about, so I want you to trust me. You see, God is never rushed nor hurried But he is always on time. He's always on time. You may be wondering God, when is my child going to stop walking in foolishness? When is my boss actually going to get their act together? When is this cancer finally going to be over? When is my marriage actually going to be fixed? Hear me, beloved, we trust his timing. We wait on the Lord. The one who created time is also the one who perfectly works within time. How do we know? Because 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Because Galatians 3, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, You see, the Lord is sovereign over all things. And so we, as his children, we trust his timing. God may be early, but he is never late. He is always on time. The Lord works on his timetable, not on ours. So we trust in his providential ways, knowing that he is working all things out for our good and for his glory. So number one, we trust God's perfect uh, record keeping. Number two, we trust God's perfect timing. Number three, we trust God's perfect plan. Isn't it interesting? The two men who sought to kill the king, they end up dead in verse 23. God takes the attack of evildoers and turns it back on their own heads. There's a lesson in this, by the way. There's a lesson. Let me, let me show you real quickly. Move forward uh, three books to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. I want you to see this. There's a lesson in violence here. In Proverbs, Solomon is writing to his son, speaking words of wisdom and life. And in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10, it sounds a whole lot like Tarish and Bigthan. He says, My son, Proverbs 1, verse 10, if sinners entice you, don't be persuaded. If they say, come with us, let's set an ambush and kill someone. Let's attack some innocent person just for, for fun. Let's swallow them alive like Sheol, Hol, like those who go down to the pit. We'll find all kinds of valuable property and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us and we'll all share the loot. My son, don't travel that road with them or set foot on their path. Why? Because verse 16, their feet run toward evil and they hurry to shed blood. It is useless to spread a net where any bird can see it, but they set an ambush, watch this, to kill themselves. They attack their own lives. We keep our ways, our steps away from those who are bloodthirsty. When there are those who are violent, we don't go near them. Because this is what happens. God turns the Plans of those who are bloodthirsty against themselves. That's what he's saying there in Proverbs 1. He's saying, My son, don't go that way because they're setting a trap for themselves. Those who are thirsty for violence, they will end up dead on their own accord. But you see, this is ultimately pointing us forward to the reverse of the curse of the bloodthirsty upon himself. We see God ultimately do this in the gospel. Satan plotted to steal, kill, and destroy by tempting Eve in the garden, but God made a promise. That the serpent and the, that had tempted God's people in the garden, the seed of the woman would crush his head. And indeed, the seed of the woman goes to the cross and he dies for God's people. He is raised from the dead on the third day and he secures the victory over Satan himself. You see, the one who sought to bring death into your life will one day die forever in the lake of fire. This is good news for us. God reverses those who seek to do violence. Ultimately, Satan himself, who sought to kill, and now he will be killed forever in hell. Which leads us to our impact point, it's this. Trust God's perfect son. Yes, Mordecai saves the king from the plot of death, and yet Jesus saves us from the ultimate plot of death. Satan hates you, and he has sought to kill you and sought to destroy you, and yet we have Jesus who steps in as the greater and better Mordecai. Jesus is the one who thwarts the enemy's assassination plot through the cross. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ is where God's perfect son made a way for death to pass over you. He made a way for the plot of your death to be changed. Jesus stops Satan's assassination attempt on you because Jesus steps in and takes the death bullet for you. Jesus steps in and takes the beating for your sin that you deserved and he takes it upon himself. Jesus is your defender who steps in and protects you from the enemy. You see, Jesus' death saves you from death. Jesus is the better and greater Mordecai who steps in and thwarts and he foils the plan of the enemy who sought to destroy you. You see, the ancient serpent, he slithered into your life through the garden of Eden and the seed of the woman crushed his head not with a wooden garden hoe but with a wooden cross so we are to trust God's perfect son we believe upon him we trust in him we are banking our lives upon Christ so this morning, look to the better and greater Mordecai. Trust in the unseen sovereign who thwarts and who foils the plans of assassination upon you through the cross and the empty tomb.